The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. Well, we're looking at, at Peter, the life of Peter. We're going to continue on with that. And as you turn into Matthew 18... I'll tell you a little story. We like stories. And I can remember when, when our family was young, and this is when Blockbuster Video was still in existence, and we were looking for something family-friendly, and we found just the right movie, The Princess Bride. And we were enjoying this classic movie with Princess Buttercup and Wesley, and of course, Inconceivable, and Andre the Giant, But lo and behold, in this movie, there's this growing undertow of Aniga Montoya. And he seems to have one line that keeps repeating itself over and over again in the movie because this mantra becomes his life purpose. And you remember the line, don't you? My name is Aniga Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. And sure enough, at the end of the movie... And Ego Montoya repeats the line, takes a sword with an expletive, and kills his enemy who killed his father. And at that moment, innocence died in our family. And Kim and I were just shocked because Haddon was tiny at the time, and his eyes were as big as saucers. And Kim and I looked at each other like, who picked this movie? Like, who do we, who do we blame for this? Like, we don't remember this line. We just remember this being such a great movie. And it's actually listed, Princess Bride is actually listed in the category of revenge movies, which there is a whole category. You've got V for Vendetta, Unforgiven. I mean, these titles should tell you enough. Payback, Kill Bill, Mad Max, The Count of Monte Cristo, John Wick, Taken, Gladiator, The Revenant, even Shawshank Redemption, and of course Rambo, They Drew First Blood. When you look for forgiveness movies, they're a little harder to find, aren't they? There's very few Les Mis type of movies. Here, take the candlesticks as well. Well, I want us all to know, particularly the youth this morning, that to live in Jesus' kingdom in heaven means that we start living in his kingdom here on earth. Jesus is the king of this kingdom, and he gives these parables in the Gospels to tell us what life is like in his kingdom because we can't physically see the kingdom and we can't physically see the king. And yet the kingdom is described for us again and again in the parables. And in Matthew 18, Jesus gives instruction for how to live in his kingdom when it comes to someone who has sinned against you. And Jesus said in Matthew 18, beginning at verse 15, which we'll we'll get to the text in a second, but he says, if your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now, there are various translations of this text. I've heard it translated, if your brother sins against you, go and tell everyone else his fault except him. Have you ever heard that translation? That's not a good translation. There's another one. If your brother sins against you, go and tell his pastor the fault except him. That's another not good translation. There's another one. If your brother sins against you, go and tell an elder or two, and then send a group email to the elders 
uh, and then tell him. Another translation is if your brother or sister sins against you, go and tell his or her spouse or his other siblings. Well, you get the point. Jesus said, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Then Jesus goes on and gives instructions for what happens when your brother will not repent. He says, bring one or two people with you, because sometimes our perspective is skewed. And if he still will not listen, then you bring it to the church. And when he gets done with this instruction, Simon Peter asks a very important follow-up question. And the question begins, and the answer begins in Matthew 18, verse 21. Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Since he couldn't pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So his servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers till he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We ask that you would lead us not into temptation, that your name would be honored in our hearts, that your kingdom would come, and that, Lord, we would grow and live in it more and more as your children, and that we would do your will. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Peter thought he was pretty good with his question. I mean, how often should I forgive a guy? And the rabbis would forgive up to three times. So Peter, being pretty, pretty confident, he doubled the number plus one. And so he thought he was doing pretty good. And uh, he says to Jesus, how many times should I forgive? Up to seven times? And Jesus says, 77 times, 70 times seven. And the idea here is what the Apostle Paul says in a love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, love keeps no record of wrongs. You don't do the math. If you're not keeping score, you're never going to get anywhere near 70 times 7. And so Jesus, in answering Peter's question, and now Jesus is making disciples, and he's making a disciple of Peter and of us, 
he tells him a, a parable about a servant who owed the king 10,000 talents. And we know this parable, just reading it, the king is the king of glory, and we're the servant who has this enormous debt. And the talent was the largest currency denomination there was. A talent would be 75 pounds in weight. And so a talent was typically silver. And so one talent would be about 75 pounds of silver. Therefore, 10,000 talents equaled 750,000 pounds or 375 tons of silver. And a talent was also equivalent to 600 denarii. And a denarius was the payment for a day's work. So if you're trying to wonder, what, what is this debt? Well, a denarius would equal a day's work and so you'd have to work about two years with, with some days off in there to pay back one talent. So one talent, two years of work. So hence this servant owes 20,000 years of work. Okay? How much money would that be? You can see this number is getting astronomical. The historian Josephus said the total annual tax yield of Palestine, which included Judea, Samaria, Galilee, and more, was only 8,000 talents. That's 2,000 less than what this servant owed. So in today's world, we'd say this guy owed somewhere between 300 and 600 billion dollars. It's an astronomical debt, but not close to our national debt, not even close, but it's big, okay? So this same servant now, who has this astronomical debt, has another servant who owes him 100 denarii. Now, how much is 100 denarii? That's a substantial debt. This would be a day's wage, would be one denarii, and take some days off in there. Basically, this was about four months of work. Realistically, 10 to 20K of money. A little bit of debt. It's a little bit of money. But in comparison, it's one six hundred thousandths in comparison, just to be precise. So you could get the analogy. So when you do the math and you think about how great your sin is compared to anybody else's against yours, it's one to six hundred thousand. Okay, that's the equivalent that Jesus is getting at in the parable. And the point of the parables is very obvious is that he wants us to see that this servant doesn't have anywhere near the resources to pay his debt. Even if he worked 10,000 years, he'd have to work another 10,000, you see? And it's to show the height and magnitude of our sins, that our sins cannot be worked off. And so the idea behind this is that God is so glorious in his majestic glory and holiness and the debt that we owe him for breaking his laws is incomprehensible. We sing this praise chorus, I'll never know how much it costs to see my sin upon that cross. It's true. If God was to calculate the debt we owe to the infractions of each of the 10 commandments that we have broken, what do we think we would really owe? Every time we grumbled at his providence, every time we complained against his goodness, murmured against 
His patience, lack contentment in our circumstances, coveted our friend's house, our friend's car, our friend's position, our popularity or achievements, or compared ourselves to others and lacked impairments, contentment in what I was made to be. And each time I tried to find ultimate satisfaction from something in this world rather than in my creator. And every time I've coveted and desired something more than the Lord, I've broken just the beginning of the law, which is the 10th commandment. Of course, it's also the first commandment. And each time we look down upon others and, you know, every time that we hold a grudge, every time that we're bitter, every time that we've said words that we shouldn't have spoken, words that didn't give grace, words that we regret, every time that we speak of people in darker colors than in reality and we've distorted the truth by creating a cartoon caricature of how we've distorted somebody before others to make them a little worse than they are or made ourselves look a little better than we are, now we're starting to move towards the ninth commandment of bearing false witness. And every time we speak more highly of ourselves than we ought, we bear false witness. And every time we fail to give God the credit and the glory of which we deserve nothing, and all of our gifts and abilities come from him, then when we take any bit of glory, we bear false witness. Every time we embellish a story to make ourselves look a little better, we bear false witness. Every time we leave out a few incriminating details or give explanations to others as to why something happened and we make the truth just a little bit tainted so that it shields us and makes us look good before others, Now we're moving towards the ninth commandment. You see, I'm just starting to crack the surface and we could just keep going down. Every time we've looked at lustfully upon another person, every time we haven't loved our neighbor as ourself, any time we have hated somebody or called them a bad name or gotten mad at somebody driving down the road or gotten angry, every time we haven't honored our parents and respected them in in our upbringing or even, even now. Every time we've said something with our lips about God, but our hearts really didn't mean it, we're taking the Lord's name in vain. And how much debt do we owe in the first commandment that we're to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, all of our souls, all of our minds, all of our strength, to be 100% passionate, 100% in love with God, satisfied in him, loving his justice, meditating on his mercy, marveling in his wisdom, trembling at his wrath, in love with his love, and hating all false gods, and hating with all our strength anything that would take his place in our lives and in this world. We have a debt, and the debt is unfathomable. And so here's the reality. When it comes to conflict, and David Pallison, who went to be with Jesus this week, I had to put a David Pallison quote in. He had pancreatic cancer. He's a great writer, and he went to be with Jesus Great man. He says this, when it comes to conflict, here's the reality. People in conflict are hypocrites. They dish out global condemnation while feeling outrage whenever they are mistakenly criticized regarding some tiny detail of a story. They grouse about a spouse spending $20 on some perceived frivolity while not thinking twice about spending $500 on their own hobbies. They damn others as theological idiots and biblical ignoramuses while they are loveless and self-righteous. They defend the God of mercy mercilessly. They harshly accuse others of harshness. They get angry at angry people. They proudly judge proud people. They gossip about gossips. May God be merciful to us all. O God who is true, make me true to you. Good and angry book, David Pallison. You see, that brings us back to the parable. 
We're just like the servant who owes a debt he couldn't pay. And then he comes to this wealthy king, the king of the universe, and we plead with him to forgive our debt. And God is pleased to provide atonement on a cross of wood at Calvary with his only son placed upon it. He was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that we deserved fell upon him. And by his stripes, by his wounds, we are healed. The Bible describes our sin in Ezra as being higher than our heads and our guilt has gone up to the heavens. And Psalm 40 says that our sins are more numerous than the hairs on our head. And for some of us, I guess that's more than others. And the Bible says in Psalm 130, if you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? Who could stand? Not me. The Bible doesn't say, please forgive my sin because it is small. The psalmist said, forgive my iniquity for it is great. The king in the parable did three things for the servant in verse 27. The same three things God does for us. Look at verse 27 and see what the king does. He took pity on him, he canceled the debt, and he let him go. Does not God take pity on us? We are told as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we're but dust. God pities us, remembers our frame. And I think for us as we cultivate pity, empathy, and compassion as we receive the compassion from the Lord, sometimes it also helps to get the bigger picture, the full story. If someone's treating you horribly, I'm not saying you should excuse their behavior, and I'm not saying let them play the victim card. I'm not saying that this morning, but hear me out. Let me try to illustrate this. I remember reading, some of you read Stephen Covey's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And he has this classic illustration of the, the man and his children on the subway. Story goes like this. This happened to Stephen Covey. I remember a mini paradigm shift I experienced one Sunday morning on a subway in New York. People were sitting quietly, some reading newspapers, some lost in thought, some resting with their eyes closed. It was a calm, peaceful scene. And then suddenly, a man and his children entered the subway car. The children were so loud and rambunctious that instantly the whole climate changed. The man sat down next to me, closed his eyes, apparently oblivious to the situation. The children are yelling back and forth, throwing things, even grabbing people's papers. It was very disturbing. And yet the man sitting next to me did nothing. It was difficult not to feel irritated. Could not believe it. He could not be so insensitive as to let his children run wild like that and do nothing about it, taking no responsibility at all. It was easy to see that everyone else on the subway felt irritated too. So finally, with what I felt was like unusual patience and restraint, I turned to him and said, Sir, your children are really disturbing a lot of people. I wonder if you couldn't control them a little more. The man lifted his gaze as if to come to a consciousness of the situation for the first time and said softly, Oh, you're right. I guess I should do something about it. We just came from the hospital where their mother died about an hour ago. I don't know what to think, and I guess they don't know how to handle it either. Can you imagine what I felt at the moment, Covey says? My paradigm shifted. Suddenly, I saw things differently. Because I saw things differently, I thought differently, I felt differently, I behaved differently. My irritation vanished. I didn't have to worry about controlling my attitude or my behavior. My heart was filled with the man's pain. Feelings of sympathy and compassion flowed freely. Your wife just died. Oh, I'm so sorry. 
Can you tell me about it? What can I do to help? Everything changed in an instant. Well, do we have pity when people do these awful things to us to recognize there's a bigger story going on? What's their insecurity? Where have they been hurt? Where have they been uh, violated in their own past? Like often there's a story and you're just getting a little piece of it and sometimes you're getting the wrath of it, but often there's a much greater story that's helpful to get the picture. Well, the king here had pity. He had pity because he knew there was no way this guy could ever pay this debt. So he canceled the debt. And this is what Christ did for us. The Bible actually says that Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed rulers and authorities, put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The message translation, which I take as good commentary, good commentary on that passage says, all sins forgiven, the slate wiped clean, the old arrest warrant canceled and nailed to Christ's cross. He stripped all the spiritual tyrants in the universe of their sham authority at the cross and marched them naked through the streets. And then what did he do? It says here that the king, he let them go. And the old King James translation says, he loosed him. I like that. Because the debt's been paid, he's now loosed. He's set free. And that's what the Bible says about us is that Revelation 1.5 says, Now to him who loved us and has loosed us from our sins, he's freed us from our sins. If the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. You've been loosed. So far, so good. This parable couldn't be any simpler, yet it couldn't be any more difficult. Simple in its meaning, difficult in its ramifications and application. He's forgiven the mountain of our sin, And so we're to treat everybody else's sin against us as a molehill in comparison. He's forgiven the sea of my sin. Everybody else's sin is just a little spoonful. If he's forgiven the ocean, I'm going to forgive the little puddle. The servant's been shown mercy, but he in turn has no mercy. And you think about this text, and you think about the position that this servant was in. He's just got this astronomical debt and no sooner than the debt has been forgiven him that he comes out and it says he sees a fellow servant who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him and notice the king did three things pity released forgave and now we're going to see three things that this guy does seized choke screamed he seized him choked him and screamed at him and said pay what you owe It reminds me of a scene from Pursuit of Happiness with Will Smith, where if you've seen the movie, great movie, it's based on a true story, and Will Smith's son is actually playing the part in the movie. And if you remember, he's homeless, and he is desperate for a place to stay. And he runs into somebody that he sees on the street that owed him some money. And he's so needing a place to stay just for a hotel or something that he grabs this guy and begins to choke him and says, pay me what you owe me because he's desperate. I need it now because he has no resources. He's so fragile and and 
everything is being hemmed in and his son is here that he grabs this guy and, and you can tell the guy's like, what's wrong with you? You know, like, what's the big deal? Well, it was a big deal. When we can't forgive somebody and we're doing that to somebody, you see, doesn't it show like an emotional problem with us? That we are so emotionally fragile that we have to get it out of them. And here this guy has just experienced the weight of this unbelievable debt. If you think about the Pursuit of Happiness movie, if you know how it ends, there's one position and there's one position that he's interning to hope to, to get the job for, and it's to be a broker in this financial company. And Will Smith has worked super hard. And if you remember at one point in the movie, one of his, the, the owner of the company asked him for $5 so he could park his car. He doesn't have any money. I mean, giving this guy $5 was like uh, enormous to give him the money. But so at the end of the movie, he lands the job and they bring him into the office, and he's trying not to come apart, trying not to break down weeping, but trying to, hey, great, thank you, you know? And when he gets outside into the street, what does he do? He is so happy. That's how the, you know, the movie ends with the pursuit. Of Do you think at that point, if he saw the guy on the side of the street that owed him a few bucks, that he would have grabbed him and choked him and said, pay what you owe? What do you think? Inconceivable. Inconceivable. And yet that's what we do when we can't forgive somebody. When we've just experienced and we know that we have been forgiven, we have real happiness. We have it. And so for us, we have to get rid of all of the roots of bitterness. And here what we, what we have is a grudge, bitterness, a resentment, and revenge. When you're pulling weeds, what happens if you don't go all the way down and get the, if you don't get the roots out, what happens? I mean, if we deal superficially with our problems, and I think a lot of times we say, ah, that's beyond me. I'm not even thinking about it anymore. I don't even think about that first marriage anymore. I don't even think about that boyfriend or girlfriend. I don't even think about that hurt anymore. I don't even think about that divorce and what happened when I was a kid or, you know, really? Have you really dealt with it? Have you really pulled the weeds up? Because a lot of times there's a lot of hurt going on there. When, when I took out the bushes to my front of my house, we had all these shrubs. They were hard to get out. Do you know what I had to do? I waited till Kim wasn't home, is what I did. And I got a big rope and I dug them around and I tied the rope to my car. And it's amazing what a little gas will do to get at those roots and just mm, yank those things up. Sometimes you have to do some big things to get the roots up. But the problem is, is if you don't get the roots up, the, Jack Miller says this, the problem with unforgiving bitterness is that it's a concealed rot that goes down deep into the life and the person doesn't know it. And yet what gets sapped is that we're no longer praying because we're bitter. And so I'd ask you this morning, you know, there's a difference between what Ken Sandy calls positional forgiveness and transactional forgiveness. There's a big difference. Positionally is that when anybody sins against us, we pray the Lord's Prayer every day. 
Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That's positional forgiveness. We've forgiven them in our hearts before God. But transactional is you actually don't give the transaction until they've actually repented. If he repents, forgive him, Jesus says. And if you go and just forgive somebody, they're going to be pretty mad at you that you're forgiving them when they don't even think they've done anything wrong to begin with. So you're wasting your transaction of, hey, I, I just want you to know I forgive you for all that, you know, what? What are you talking about? And so we need to do we need to be prepared to give the transactional forgiveness. And if we haven't done positional forgiveness and dealt with them before God, when you go to do Matthew 18, 15 and show somebody their fault, if we haven't really forgiven them, what happens? As we're beginning to show them their fault, we're doing this. Pay back what you owe. We grab them by the collar and we pull them up and we want them to put them over real close to the dog do and make them sniff it for a while. Because if we haven't really forgiven them, it's going to be hard to show anybody their fault because we're gonna to wanna to hurt them. And so we have to deal with this positionally before God. And it, the way to do that is to remember what the difference. Look what God has done for me and to compare the difference. And the reality is when, when you forgive, you're setting two people free. You set the debtor free who owes you, but you're also freeing yourself. You see, it's often you think to yourself, but if I forgive them, they're going to win. But actually, if you don't forget them, forgive them, you lose, big time. Because unforgiveness and bitterness is the poison that you drink, not them. And it contaminates you and distorts and ruins your prayer life. It'll steal your joy. It'll keep you proud. It'll sub subtly feed your pride. And its roots will keep growing and spreading out like bamboo. But we often think there's a few reasons, I think, are barriers why we don't forgive. Two, two barriers. Sam Storms helped me with these. He says, first of all, we often think, I would forgive him if he deserved it. You ever thought that to yourself? I'd forgive him if he deserved it, or she deserved it. Imagine if Jesus said that. I would forgive him if he or she deserved it. We're to forgive as Christ has forgiven us. So if they deserve to be forgiven, you'd be bound to give them the justice they deserved. It wouldn't be forgiveness. Jesus doesn't forgive us because we deserve to be forgiven. Jesus lived for his enemies, loved his enemies, prayed for his enemies, and died for his enemies. And guess who his enemies were? Us. Romans 5.10. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. How much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and he demonstrated his love for us that while we were sinners... Christ died for us. So we can't think they have to deserve it because they don't deserve it. We didn't deserve it. And two things that forgiveness doesn't mean. Forgiveness doesn't mean that you cease longing for justice. Sometimes we think, well, if I forgive them, then I, then I must be against the idea of justice. Here's the reality. Vengeance is not a bad thing. If vengeance were a bad thing, then God would be guilty of a sin. It's just that he's better at it than we are. So you leave it to him. Forgiveness doesn't mean you ignore a wrong that's done or deny that sin was committed. It means simply that you let God be the avenger. Didn't he say that? Leave room for God's wrath, for it is mine to avenge. It's mine to repay. So get out of the way. Let God take care of it. And one reason people refuse to forgive is they believe that to do so would minimize the offense, and that's not fair. But God will, he's the ultimate judge, and he will bring justice. 
Secondly, forgiveness does not mean that you make it easier for the offender to hurt you again. You think, well, if I forgive them, they're just going to walk all over me. Well, he or she may hurt you again. That's their choice. But you set boundaries on your relationship with them. True love never aids or abets the sin of another. True forgiveness is not incompatible with holding a person accountable for their actions and calling them to repent. Forgiveness doesn't mean you become a doormat for somebody else's sin. So how can we forgive this morning? Well, how did Christ forgive us? Great preacher Charles Spurgeon said, Jesus Christ absorbs sinners with all his heart. He never acts in a cold, formal manner. Never does he outwardly forgive and in secret retain his wrath, but wholly, entirely, joyfully, he puts away the sin of those whom he forgives and puts it away forever. When he forgives, he forgives the whole of our faults, follies, failures, and offenses. He keeps back no reckonings. He retains no reserves of anger. There's no reservoirs of wrath waiting to come down on you when the dam breaks loose at the next offense. Jesus doesn't just, you know, give us a reprieve. He gives us a free pardon and continual forgiveness because we are forever acquitted. And so sometimes we can forgive, but we forgive in a very haughty way. Spurgeon describes it like this. Some people forgive in an ungracious way. They make it appear that they are coming down from such awful heights when they forgive a fellow mortal. In great dignity, they march down in state from their splendid innocence to the poor brother who's done them a wrong as good as saying, I will condescend to do this, though it's such an awful stoop for such an angelic being such as I. (laughs) Well, We tell the world and what we proclaim the message of the gospel is that Jesus' forgiveness is greater than the greatest offense. And yet sometimes in practice, Christians live like they can't forgive the least offense. And yet we're told in scripture that it's to a man's glory to overlook an offense. The hypocrisy then would be appalling. So do we practice what we preach Because the reality, what this parable is getting at, is if you won't, he won't. Meaning God nowhere lets us off the hook. George Herbert, the great poet from the 1700s, said, He that will not forgive breaks the bridge over which he himself must pass if he would reach heaven. You see, the reality is that unforgiveness is unrepentance. One of the Beatitudes is, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Jesus said in Mark eleven twenty five, 25, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your fathers in heaven may forgive your trespasses. And the same with the Lord's Prayer. Do you know how the Lord's Prayer actually continues? We tend to stop the Lord's Prayer a little short, but this is what Jesus said. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Matthew 6, 12 to 15. For mercy is without judgment to, to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And so C.S. Lewis you know, says everybody thinks forgiveness is a great idea until he has something to forgive. But he also says, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you what Christianity is. I didn't invent it. 
And there, right in the middle of it, I find, forgive us our sins as we forgive those that sin against us. There is no slightest suggestion that we are offered forgiveness on any other terms. It is made perfectly clear that if we do not forgive, we shall not be forgiven. So as we live in his kingdom with the king, the king who was here, and we don't see him now physically, and we don't see this physical kingdom, but we're in the kingdom now. It's already not yet tension, and the kingdom is breaking in now. And Jesus says, okay, church, believers, as you live in this kingdom, this is how you're to live. You're to extend the very grace and love, freely forgive as I have forgiven you. And so how do we do that? Well, we are told, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my name's sake, and I will not remember your sins. That's what God says to us in Isaiah 43, 25. He blots out our transgressions, and he will not remember our sins. He hurls them into the depths of the sea, we're told in Micah. And so the idea that forgive and forget, you can't forget some of these. And listen, I don't know a lot of the horrible things that have happened to some of you. I don't know the things that have, been, that have happened to you, but I do know what's been done for you. And what's been done for you is great enough to give you the grace to forgive what others have done to you. And I'm confident of that because Jesus is the one who said it. And Jesus has paid a much greater debt. He's blotted out our transgressions. He remembers not our sins. And so we have to practice the practice of choosing not to remember. We can't forget, but we can actively choose not to recall and to dig it up and to let it go and to give it over to Jesus afresh. Would you do that this morning? Let's pray. Lord, we know that we are most like you when we forgive and most like the devil when we hate and hold on to grudges and bitterness. And we don't want to be like the devil. We hate him and his lies. And we thank you that you have intruded your great love and paid a massive debt for us. Thank you that we are happy in Jesus. And so, Lord, out of the overflow of what you've done, we give you our hurt. And we ask that you'd forgive us, Lord, for holding on in areas where we've been hurt. And we ask by the power of your Spirit that you would give us the grace to continue to forgive. We ask for your help in these things in Jesus' name. Amen.